Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Today in the show, we'll be talking about a recently released research paper on fake news that's getting a lot of media attention. It's been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, the New Yorker, and a bunch of other places. The paper's title is Selective Exposure to Misinformation, Evidence from the Consumption of Fake News During the 2016 U.S. Presidential Campaign. And I'll be talking about it with one of the authors, Jason Reifler, a professor of political science at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Dr. Reifler, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first off, can you tell me how this research project came about in the first place? Um, So like with a lot of interesting research projects, it came about um, to some degree out of luck. So Andy Guess, Brendan Nyhan, and I had a study in the field. Um, we were doing a survey. And the cool thing about the survey that we were doing, in addition to the content that we were asking, is we were able to see the websites that people were visiting. So there was a, a separate data component that people opted into to see, um, to have their web traffic um, recorded. So we can see what websites they're going to. Um, and we had originally done this for, for something else. And then um, as the election was going on, and once it ended, we realized that, that we would be in a pretty unique position to estimate how much fake news people were visiting, um, what types of fake news they were visiting. Is this something that existed on both sides of the political spectrum? And so we're able to connect the survey responses to the web uh, data, and it just allowed us to do something that was that was really cool. That was not what we originally planned. Um, sometimes it's better to be lucky, you know. Sometimes luck is 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 on your side. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was wondering if you could talk about that term fake news. Now it's used obviously in a variety of different ways by different people. And, and as, as a social scientist, I I mean, I always, my, one of my first questions is is how do you define your, your operationalize your variables? And so I'm sure that was a, a main issue for you. So could you explain how you defined fake news for the purposes of your study? Yes. So when we're talking about fake news, what we really mean here is, um, uh, fictitious or wholly fictitious um, content um, that is produced strictly for profit without any regard to journalistic standards um, or or truth or or anything like that. So it it can range from the the totally hyperbolic, um, sort of outrageous partisan claims to just some of the most extreme. Um, outright falsehoods. Um, the you know, Denver Guardian um, DNC murder conspiracy um, or Pizzagate. Um, it, actually, Pizzagate might be a, a kind of a, a tricky one. But, um, the, so, but what we're not including in fake news is the hyper-partisan websites that are still doing to some degree of um, informing. So one of the really hard borderline cases in our study is Breitbart.com. And we don't count Breitbart as um, fake news. We've estimated it looking at, at, at Breitbart, including it, um, and it doesn't change our results um, 
substantively. But so in terms of how we come up with a definition, we actually do it two different ways. Um, and the results are nearly identical between the two different ways. Uh, the first way that we define what counts as fake news is just directly um, replicating what um, Alcott and Genskow did in their article um, about fake news. And they do it by starting with um, fact checks by Snopes.com and um, PolitiFact and looking at the websites that are making um, false claims and sort of building out a universe of domains from there that start with um, specific claims that have been fact-checked and been found as false. Um, the other way that we do it is we start with a list of websites that um, Craig Silverman, a reporter for BuzzFeed, has been tracking um, and just looking at the, the websites that he says are the, the, the purveyors of fake news. Um, and using either of these approaches, a universe that starts with um, fact checks, like following Alcon and Ginskow, or starting with um, the domains that sort of the best reporter working on the fake news beat, maybe the only reporter working on the fake news beat, but he's, his work is really awesome. And Craig's doing a really fantastic job on this. Um, it's sort of the ones that, you know, it's the guy who's reading this as part of his job. You know, what he says is the fake news. Um, it, you know, in a perfect world, we would be able to go out and code every single website out there relative to ground truth and be able to decide whether it's fake or not fake and how true or how fake it is. Yeah. But a huge um, job. <laughs> we, we unfortunately do not have the coders available yeah. to code every website in existence. <laughs> right. Um, although some reviewers have asked us to do that. Jeez. Okay. Uh, so what were your key findings? So our key findings are first and foremost that Americans consumed a non-trivial amount of fair new, uh, fake news. That our estimate is that 25% of the public uh, visited at least one fake news um, website uh, in October 2016. And that the mean number of fake news articles that somebody read was 5.5. Um, and that of the 5.5 uh, articles that people read, five or about 90% were pro Trump. Um, in orientation. Um, and how we conceptually think about one quarter of the electorate visiting fake news uh, is, is a, a, I think, is slightly tricky. So on the one hand, that's a really large number, and that's really scary. Um, on the other hand, it means three quarters of the public um, is not visiting fake news. Um, and so that's maybe a lot more comforting. I, I think that over the course of working on this project for about the last year, that um, Andy, Brendan, and I have sort of changed our interpretation of what the, the data mean. I think when we first looked at it, we were like, oh, my God, this is, this is terrible. And um, 
this is the you know the end of the world as we know it. That's an exaggeration. That we were, I think that we were normatively very very scared by it. I think that now we remain nervous, but I think that our level of of panic is sufficient is is dramatically less. Well, that, now I can. That's it. That that's encouraging. Definitely, I would say. So I I wanted to to ask you about that because one thing that a lot of people are concerned about is I guess. There's this idea, right, that if you are exposed to fake news, it's going to influence your views. But it seems to me, isn't it sort of a two-step process in that you have to be exposed to the fake news, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that fake news is going to alter your perception or alter your vote choice, right? I I think that's right. And and this is the thing that's really, really tricky to try and, and figure out. And unfortunately, our data don't answer this question. Our data tell us whether people have visited a fake news website. It doesn't tell us the extent to which it changes their vote. It doesn't tell us um, uh, if it changes how much they like one candidate versus another. It doesn't uh, tell us whether they're more or less excited about the election. It doesn't tell us what they then post on Facebook that their friends might see or what they might say to their friends in real life. Um, It doesn't tell us how it changes the um, how they talk about politics with their with their friends and family. But I think what it, it what it does tell us is that people are interested in um, in in this kind of content, um, at least on the margins. But they might be interested in it because they really agree with it, and I'll elaborate on that point in in a moment. But then there are also people who. I just take myself as an example. I think, um, you know, everybody has a relative that is as far on the other side of the political spectrum as they are. And when they post something political, sometimes you click into it just to see what they're, just to keep tabs on what they're posting to see if it's worth taking the time to argue about it uh, with them on Facebook. And so if I were in the data set that we have, I would come up as one of the people who um, clicked on a piece of uh, pro-Trump fake news um, because I have a very conservative uh, relative who posts pro uh, conservative, pro-Republican things, um, some of which are more factually challenged than others. And every now and then I click in to see why it's wrong. Um, and I'm sure he does some that with me too. At least I think he does. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, people might consume fake news for different reasons. Um, and to think that it changed the outcome of the election, we would have to think that individual pieces of fake news have really just had overwhelming amounts of influence, much larger than we would think we would see in like an individual television commercial. Which you know we think that any one TV ad in an election campaign, particularly um, a presidential election campaign, where there's so much information from so many other sources, that it's just unlikely to 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 move the needle that much. Now it doesn't mean that it didn't. Our our paper doesn't say one way or the other. I think that that what I interpret from the data is that it's pretty unlikely that fake news changed the outcome of the election. 
But that is not not the same thing as saying it's not a problem and therefore we don't have to worry about it. Right. Now, it, be- uh, say it, it becomes more of a more of an issue, more of a problem, right, when elections are closer, because these effects we're only going to probably see a change at the margins. And so the closer the, the, the result is, the more likely that something could be a, a kind of a tipping point. Yes. Yeah. 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 Politics, things are always on the margins in politics. Um, and um, but so one of the other things that we found that I think is really important and interesting is that we did see big differences in who was consuming fake news um, and that it was Trump supporters who were largely consuming more fake news and the fake news they were consuming was pro-Trump fake news. But it wasn't just Trump supporters generally. It really was the um, group of people that already had the most conservative media diets overall. So because we had their web traffic data, we can see what websites are people going to generally to get um, information about politics. And we can now say how conservative or liberal their overall information diet is. And the fake news consumption is really overwhelmingly concentrated in the group of people that have the most conservative media diets. So. These are people who were already going to vote for Trump, almost certainly. There, there were probably were not a, a large number of Hillary Clinton voters in the people who are consuming the, the highest amounts of, of um, conservative media. So um, and that is another reason why, at least I think that this probably didn't influence, didn't change the outcome of the election, that these are the people who were already um, likely to vote for Trump. And these are the people who were in particular, I think, um, very engaged in the election and engaged in politics because they were consuming a lot of politically oriented media. So it's it's the people who were already interested and were likely to vote and had probably made up their mind who they were gonna vote for, at least in terms of it not being Hillary before the primaries even started. I wanted to ask you a little bit about fact-checking, because a lot of people say that the answer to uh, minimizing the negative effects, whatever they are, of fake news, is for uh, better and more consistent fact-checking. And I'm wondering, how effective, is your sense, is has fact-checking fact been? So I'm going to give the typical Weasley academic <laughs> uh, nuanced answer. Okay. And so the first part is I think fact-checking is hugely important. I think that it plays a vital and valuable role in political discourse. Um, I think that it does help inform voters. Um, again, these, as we talked about before, these things are on the margins. Um, it maybe doesn't, it doesn't reach everybody. Um, but I, it matters on the margins. There's some evidence that fact-checking uh, limits the degree to which politicians will actively try and um, mislead. Um, so fact-checking serves as an important constraint or check on politicians who, who want to, to mislead. And it helps um, voters. I think it helps shape um, sort of larger media narratives. I think it gives um, 
important source material to reporters who are covering a race and trying to make decisions about what candidate statements should and should not be included in the the articles they write up and and how they write about things. So I think fact checking is hugely important and hugely valuable. Um, again, it, it works on the margins. It is there's no single intervention that is going to be um, a panacea and put us into um, a utopian ideal of democratic citizenship um, where everybody is perfectly informed and uh, listens to arguments of the other side and that we engage only with reason and um, are not clouded by um, emotions. That, like, that, and that's, an, unre that's an, un an unreasonable standard to hold to measure whether fact-checking is is working to say, does it make everything perfect? Um, and so, so I think so in that regard, I think it's really, really um, valuable. Where fact-checking has not been able to show that it is super helpful or effective yet is that what our study shows is that um, people are not reading fact-checks about the fake news that they consume. So if somebody is consuming fake news, um, we don't see them then checking whether that claim is true or false by going to fact checks about that fake news, that we, we don't see that. But fact checks are also really valuable in terms of if it's something that, so using that example of, is it something that I want to take my time to argue about with my uh, relatives that I strongly disagree with on politics? Does it give me something that I can point to that can be in our um, online discussion and say, well, here's what has actually been uh, said? Um, and that probably won't influence him. But all of our relatives who are seeing us bicker back and forth on Facebook, it might influence some of them and it might play a role and the conclusions that, that they reach. So I, I, I do think that the fact-checking is really important. Um, uh, a line that I'm stealing from um, one of my co-authors, uh, Brendan Nyhan, is that you know, the test of fact-checking is not, does it end all lying? Um, that's an unreasonable standard, and it's hard to measure the effect of fact-checking, particularly as a constraint on politicians, because you can never measure the lies that aren't told because of fact-checking. Right, that's a good point, yeah. You know, I, one thing, and you mentioned uh, uh, stealing something from Brendan, I think there's a line of research, and I think he might have contributed to this as well, suggesting that uh, sometimes actually presenting uh, strong partisans with uh, uh, with fact check information, you know, demonstrating that their candidate or their view is incorrect, it might actually have a sort of a backfire sort of effect in, in some instances, right? Yeah. So that's, that's a paper that Brendan and I did, um, that was published in, in 2010. Um, and we have found effects like that in a number of different, um, examples, um, and sort of the example that comes from our the first study that we did um, along these lines looked at um, if we were curious why um, people continued to say that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, even after the U.S. government had said, well, actually, you know, it turns out we were wrong. There weren't really any weapons of mass destruction there. 
Um, and so we did an experiment. And one of the things that we found was that if we gave corrective information to uh, when we gave corrective information to the most conservative subjects in an experiment, that they actually said that they were more likely they were more likely to say that Iraq had WMD compared to a control condition that didn't receive corrective information. Um, but I think there's there's so this happens sometimes, but I think there's also some really really important um, sort of follow up to that, which is. We don't always find that. In fact, in that original paper from 2010, we had a total of uh, five different experiments that we did, and we only found a backfire effect in, effect in two out of the five. So it would seem to me that an absolute top, le- uh, you know, a top end estimate of the of how often this happens is 40 percent. Um, and we've done some subsequent studies and some other people. Um, Ethan Porter of GW and Tom Wood of Ohio State have done a big paper suggesting that that they actually find in a in a very large study that this happens fairly infrequently. Um, and, and so I think there's actually a lot of exciting work being done right now to see exactly how often this happens, the context under which it happens, um, who exactly it happens with. Um, and so I, the final word on this is is you know I think we're still learning a lot and. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we, Brandon and I both think that fact-checking is important is that some of the other work that we've shown says that, well, actually giving people information can have a positive effect. You don't always get that backfire fact like we saw in the, in the one study. Well, that, that's, uh, that's encouraging so much in, in media studies and media and politics seems so negative. It's, it's nice to hear something that at least gives me some ground for hope. And you know, I, I wanted to ask you, because it seems like so much of the political information people get and the fake news people get comes through social media and Facebook. And that it seems to me that part of a solution to getting that information in front of people, it would have to go through that same channel if that's where they're they're getting their you know their news stories in the first place, right? Yeah. So I I, I think that um, you know we all have some degree of responsibility of when we're engaging with people on on Facebook and in other channels to make sure that we're spreading accurate information. Um, you know, it's very easy to want to share um, or post articles that we agree with because we you know agree with the underlying sentiment even when we know that there may be some it may not be perfectly accurate and i just think we have to resist um doing that it's hard to persuade other people your whatever side of the aisle on and whatever therefore opposite side of the aisle on your proverbial crazy uncle um is on you're probably not going to convince them um and you know, sort of my hope is I would love to see more um, civil political discourse. I know that sounds sort of Pollyannish, and I'm I'm not used to being the guy who delivers the the optimistic news. Maybe that's a maybe that's a sign of how dark things have become. Um, that I'm the the voice of the op, of optimism. 
But along those areas, I mean, there actually have been, I seem to recall, some studies, some small experiments finding that depending on how you set up conversations between people of different ideological views, you actually can at least maybe not change views, but at least uh, reach greater understanding depending on how that whole thing is carried out. Obviously, if you respond to someone's post on Facebook saying, you ignorant idiot, that's not going to work. But but there are ways to do this, right? Yes, I, th- I think there are. And 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 we're trying to design some new studies to, to sort of follow up on that too. And I, and I, I yes, there's work that shows that, um, yeah, how we talk about things matters, and that there, 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 there are possibilities. And if we could, um, you know, I, I think take some of the heat out of politics, we would all be better off. I mean, um, I'm sure you teach this to your to your students that um, if you teach a campaigns uh, course or an intro to American politics course that, you know, politicians are just trained in trying to communicate their message to present as stark a contrast to voters as they possibly can. You know, um, this this election offers a clear choice. Um, and the choice is what I offer, which is, which is good times, and what my uh, opponent offers, which is a post-apocalyptic <laughs> hellscape. Right, exactly. Sure. Well, um, and and I wish we could take that. And I understand why they do that. And if I were one of their advisors, that's probably exactly what I would be telling them as well. But I really wish that we could, you know, take the 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 heat down a bit. But at the same time, we live in times where that, you know, yeah, it, that's it's hard to very do. Very difficult. Well, you know, speaking specifically about the 2016 election, I'm wondering if you have any sense or any feel for how generalizable these your findings were. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, with with so many things, Donald Trump is uh, sort of an American original. And so I'm wondering if this could be maybe just sort of a Trump one-off type of phenomena, or or do you think it's really part of something that's far more pervasive and that we're likely to see in, you know, in future elections, even those that don't, you know, feature Donald Trump? Um, So what, I think that's a really good question and a really important one, and I probably don't have as good an answer as that question deserves. Um, I think that in Trump, we have seen a political figure that is just not bound by the norms that we have assumed that politicians would be bound by. Um, And I think that, so how much of this is Trump, do I think, you know, so imagine a counterfactual in which um, Ted Cruz is the nominee instead of Donald Trump. Do I think that the same um, interference in terms of creating a social media landscape that was anti-Clinton would have existed and that some of the same fake news might have uh, sprung up? Even without Trump, I, th- I think that probably it would have um, would have gotten the same platform. I have no idea. Do I think that? Um, and, and what I don't have a particularly good sense of is: Are future politicians going to continue to be bound by sort of historical norms of what is appropriate or what people are willing to say or not say? Um, and then I think there's a really open question of how the public as a whole responds to politicians that 
are just um, have almost no filter um, when it comes to to misinformation. It, you know, certainly lots and lots of previous politicians and presidents have said things that aren't accurate or have used clever wording um, and nuance to slightly mislead, to say things, to dissemble and say things that are technically true, but that what you infer is something slightly different and isn't true, and the inference isn't true. Um, and and the, the, Trump's willingness to engage in, in much more wholesale um, uh, untruths is, I, I mean, it really is un, unprecedented. And how other elites respond and how the American public responds in terms of what they listen to and how they trust politicians. And if there just reaches a point where um, whatever he says is not believed, even when it is true, or if it's true. I, the, these are just larger questions that I don't think anybody has a good good handle on. If there's any one lesson I'm going to take away from 2016, it's that I'm going to try not to predict the future. Yeah, yeah. Without, I mean, and certainly, I think it's easy to paint a scenario where you can see it going either way. Really, you know, it's not doesn't seem that implausible to me. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I wish that the response would be, um, we can do better, and we have to do better because um, our ability to be a self governing. Um, democracy or, or, or a public is, is on the line. And, and I think that the stakes are potentially that high. Um, and, and and we all have to play a role in, 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 in making things better. Definitely. Definitely. There's just one final question for you. So what advice, if any, do you have for listeners who, uh, you know, want to minimize their exposure, their consumption in fake news, or want to be uh, as, as smart as possible in terms of determining what's fake and what's not. Any suggestions? I mean, I think there are a few simple, simple ones. Um, the first is just one of the, essentially one of the questions you asked, which is if you're not sure, Google it and fact check it. If it seems like it probably is not true, there's a good chance it's not. Um, and use fact checking, use PolitiFact, use Washington Post fact checker, use um, factchecker dot, uh, factcheck.org, use Snopes.com. Now, Snopes.com has actually probably done the most on fake news, um, you know, because a lot of that was internet based and a lot of what they did was looking at internet based rumors. It makes sense that they would do um, sort of the most on this. So, so don't be afraid to, to fact check. Um, I think another is, you know, the most outlandish claims are almost certainly not true. Um, it, whenever a a major political figure is being accused of things like uh, murder, I, I mean, it's just, just, you know, just to start with the default that it's probably not true. Um, and having healthy skepticism and having healthy skepticism, not just about your um, side. So when somebody criticizes your side, you have a skepticism, but also have a skepticism when people are criticizing um, the people that, that you think are are worthy of criti of criticizing. Um, and so, you know, when you have people in the political spectrum that you disagree with, you know, critique them on 
on real grounds. On, on we can have political disagreements and political debate about what policies should be, what the direction of uh, of the country should be in, di- in different ways, and let's have the debate on those grounds and not over um, things that simply um, aren't true. And I think more than anything else is um, just you know trying to find a way to be respectful of of our of our fellow human beings and it's it's not you know it's it's not always easy but um you know just uh, some basic kindness and respect can go a long way amen i mean starting from the starting from the assumption that your opponent is evil and wants to destroy the country is probably not going to get you very far it yes and it and it almost certainly isn't true yeah exactly exactly um i may have very strong policy disagreements with um m- some members of congress but i don't think that they fundamentally hate the country they just have a different vision of what they would like policy to be amen all right well thank you so much dr jason rifle i really appreciate you taking the time for come on the show and, and talk to me about your research well thank you for having me it's been fun That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.